This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Simon's Crossing, co-authored by Charles William Asher and Dennis Patrick Slattery. And we have Charles Asher with us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Charles. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? Well, this is such a fascinating story of... For many reasons, immediately everyone recognizes Simon of Cyrene because of his just his moment in time where he was plucked out of the crowd along the path to Calgary, Golgotha, and forced to carry Jesus' cross. So we know about him in the scriptures, but after that, we know nothing about him because nothing more is said. But you've taken it to that next step. You've used your creative license and said, what if, you know, what, what, what really happened to Simon? Tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to take that next step and tell us the rest of the story. All right. Well, it, it actually begins with a bit of a story before we tell Simon's story. And basically, my good friend and colleague, um, Dennis Slattery, who, by the way, is a terrific writer and poet, you know, published some 15 books, and some of the powerful imagery in this novel really comes from that poetic side of him. Well, Dennis um, was on a sabbatical. He's out in the desert. He was at a Carmelite monastery. He's Roman Catholic, and he was doing the Stations of the Cross. I guess he came to the fifth station of the cross out in the desert and sat down there and As he was sitting there, this thought kind of came to him where he kind of heard a voice saying, "Um, tell my story. And, you know, Dennis kind of, I'm sure, moved on to the next station. And then, you know, about three months later, I was sitting in my office. I was a provost of a graduate school where Pacifica Graduate Institute up in Santa Barbara, and Dennis called to make an appointment with me, and, you know, I'm used to working with 40 or 50 different faculty, and, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, now, you know, probably here comes some contract negotiation or whatever, but Dennis comes in and kind of sheepishly sits down and says, you know, Charles, I was out in that desert, and about three months ago, looking at Simon of Cyrena's station, and I, like, heard this voice tell my story. Well, you know, I said, uh, oh, sure, Dennis. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, you know, you know how it is. Right. Maybe it's a gender thing with those guys. I had to give them a rough time a little bit. Like, right. yeah, did you have heat stroke, Dennis? Or, you know, were you chewing on something out in the desert there? Or So after we got, you know, past a little bit that, he said, no, you know, you know how it is, and you know, you know, I'm a poet, and you're a Jungian analyst and a priest, and an Episcopalian priest, and you know, sometimes there are thoughts that 
have us, you know, we don't so much have them. It's kind of like dreams, you know. We say, well, I had a dream last night, but sometimes it's more accurate to say the dream has me. Well, you know, I heard this, and after a while, after these three months have gone by, I thought, I've got to come and talk to you. I think we've got to tell the story about Simon, and I think you and I need to do this together. So um, are you willing to do that? Uh, <laughs> needless to say, this wasn't a contract negotiation, and I sat back in, in my chair. But in an instant, both seeing Dennis's reaction and my own, I said, count me in, Dennis. Let's do it. Let's figure out what needs to be told. And that started a, what, seven over seven-year project. <laughs> exactly. If you can believe that, it was... Um, back and forth, and we emailed each other to start with. We met, you know, a couple times during the week, and we talked it over a lot. I tell you, you got to be really good friends to end up editing each other's work back and forth and <laughs> yes. cutting out these things that he cut things out I loved and I cut things out that he loved, and <laughs> we're still best buddies. Yeah, that's true friendship there. It is, for sure. So when you... When you first started thinking, how are we going to tell the rest of the story about Simon, what were some of the first things you, I mean, how did you come up with the storyline? Well, let's, you know, start with the idea of, of the importance of the story. I mean, here, there is in the three Gospels, not in John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus carries his own cross, but in Mark, which is probably the most original source, Mark fifteen twenty one. There's just a very simple reference which says they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrena, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So there's just this little obscure, you know, reference. But Dennis and I, you know, both had this, you know, strong feeling that all of us have our own particular stories that we're struggling with or dealing with. Um, and we needed to flesh out who this person might be. So we had a few, you know, facts, you know, to work with. But basically, we understood and realized that this, like any one of us, this person, Simon, is, is going to be a very complex person. We know he's got sons. We know he's then has had a you know, wife. Um, he's going to be living in a very particular country. He's coming in from the country. And we wanted to tell a full story about what might have happened to him when he was suddenly as just a passerby and a bystander yanked into this incredible story of the the journey to the crucifixion. So we really don't know if he's a believer or not. That's right. We know that he's he comes from a North African, you know, country. He's um coming in for the Passover as thousands of people would travel from different countries to the the synagogues, um, you know, in Jerusalem. And we can imagine that he, like any one of us, and I think this is what I know deeply gripped me, and I think, you know, without speaking too much for Dennis himself, that I 
know gripped him as well, is that it seems like every one of us, um, at some time in our life, or sometimes at many times in our lives, we're suddenly compelled to carry a burden, but not only our burden, but the burden of another person. And when that happens to us, or when it happens to someone that we're very you know, close to, there's all kinds of possible reactions. And uh, it may be that it comes from a sudden loss in our lives. It, it may you know, come because we're sick. Um, some disease is you know, suddenly upon us. We get a test result. We have trouble in relationships. We're dealing with gender issues or we're... There's a lot of things that all of a sudden we're compelled to carry. How do you react to that? I mean, what um, everyone's going to have a different reaction to suddenly experiencing their own, you know, suffering. And so we started to imagine, I mean, here's Simon, all of a sudden, and we know he's going to be carrying something in his life. Now, the novel talks about, you know, and in a sense makes a story and tells a story about what that is, and I think that's really interesting. It's pretty gnarly what happens to him. But then it's, how, do, how does he deal with that? Yeah, he you know, hates, does, he hates he, the yeah. Romans. We won't give away why, but he hates the Romans. Well, you know, Rome has got a huge grip on that, you know, time in history, and, and particularly hard on the Jewish, you know, people, and um, there, here are you know the Jewish people coming in with their purification laws to go to you know Passover and so forth, and and you know Rome, Pilate, the powers that be, want to keep things under control, want to keep things in place, and um, they don't want an unruly you know problem you know going on. You know Pilate's going around there looking for weapons of mass destruction. Instead, you know, here comes Jesus riding in on a, you know, on a donkey with some followers, but there's a great fear that, you know, he might be a political messiah. And so they, they're going to cramp down on him, and they clamp down on him, and they want to make sure that, you know, in the end he's killed and crucified and under, you know, Roman law, executed in that manner. They don't think he he might not make it you know, to the cross. He he might be so exhausted and, you know, so close to death from the brutality that he experienced that um, he might die before he gets there. So here, a, a Roman centurion, which had the right to do this, compels him to carry this cross, just picks this bystander Simon from Kyrena or Cyrena out of the crowd, hey, you've got to carry this cross. So this story, as you put it, it explores a lot of different themes, and these are very emotional from one end of the spectrum to another in intensity. I mean, you have violence, revenge, hatred, loss of purpose in life, resurrection, grace, forgiveness, love, passion, lust, redemption through the suffering of others, sacrifice. I mean, that is about every uh, possible of emotion, and it runs the gamut because of this incredible emotional experience. You said it perfectly there, Steve. That's exactly what goes on. And I know Dennis, both Dennis and myself, as you know, 
writing a novel, you, you do a lot of drafts on it, and I can tell you that each time that we went through this, it was deeply moving, you know, to us, I mean, as well. It just, because there are all those different experiences that that you see happen in this novel. And, you know, one of the, one of the challenges, Steve, about writing this, um, you know, on the one hand, you have a relatively obscure reference, you know, to, to Simon of Cyrena. But on the other hand, you've got this very familiar story that, um, you know, we're, here we are right now in the middle of Lent. Good time to read this novel. Um, and you've got with a passion play going on over in Germany where 500,000 people go to see this. And so there's a familiarity here. And, you know, a person's going to say, well, you know, pick up this novel, but haven't we told this story? But the question is, do do we ourselves personally really know this story? And how do you get to know that? And our sense is that sometimes, rather than having it just directly said in a rational way in your face, that by telling the story where you can identify and understand an ordinary person who suffered, and you go along with that, you, you submit yourself to that story, just like we try to submit ourselves to that voice. You get into that from the inside, and I think the readers would be surprised to see that it's a, a unique way in which Simon goes through his own change and transformation. And so... In the end, it's not like we're going to just imitate Simon because it's going to raise the question, well, how do I deal with my burden? And if I have a story about my burden, how do I place that within the context of a larger story? And in this case, the story of the crucifixion. And if I'm able to place that in, within that larger story, can that be a source of healing? Can that be a way that we begin to glimpse some other ways to, within which we can carry our, our own suffering? As you say uh, in a written statement, this kind of sums up what you've been talking about. You know, it's the story of the wounded, afflicted human spirit. And then, of course, also the ability to absorb and even transcend that those experiences in our life, which at the moment we're going through them, seems like they're just going to kill us. Absolutely, that, um, that that's absolutely true. How, now, how does that transcendence takes place? I we mean, have about you... uh, we have about two minutes left, uh, totally. <laughs> okay, boy, time does go by yeah, quickly. It does. Yeah, well, I think that's part of what um, a person who reads this would explore, you know, that they would, by identifying with the characters and seeing the different reactions that the characters have to the crucifixion, a, a kind of community is formed around Simon, and it's an unusual twist at the end as to how change takes place. You know, I hope that it might filter down, and Dennis and I, of course, would love to hear from, you know, people in terms of their reactions, their thoughts, because, you know, we continue to have our own 
struggles that we go along with that we all have as you know human beings and we're in it together and hopefully Simon you know sheds a little light on this Simon's crossing well it sounds we like an award cross to a different place it sounds like an award winning movie you know an Oscar night movie it sounds that kind <laughs> of, a, of a theme and well, a plot. That, that would be pretty nice you know I think <laughs> I think a, a more modest thing would be that right now during Lent, you know, a person right. in a church picks up uh, 10 copies of that and gets a group together and they reflect on this and think about it and see how it relates to their lives. Well, Charles, how do we get your book? Well, um, there's a couple of ways. I mean, iUniverse, of course, so you go directly to iUniverse.com. It's on Amazon.com. Um, I myself have a website, which would just be drdrcharlesasher.com. I could make sure that, you know, I can at least direct a person towards those to get those books. And, um, you know, I think it's, um, I've uh, already had, you know, quite a few responses, you know, t- you know, to the book. And it seems to stimulate conversation and thought and, and people you know, come to uh, a little different place in their lives having gone through it, at least the people that have responded. So, gosh, we're hopeful that can be helpful to people. Well, thank you, Charles, for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's, it's a great pleasure, Steve, to talk with you and have this conversation. Thank you so much. That was Charles Asher. He is a co-author, along with Dennis Slattery, of Simon's Crossing, a novel. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Simon's Crossing. It's co-authored by Dennis Slattery and Charles Asher. And Dennis joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dennis. Hi. Good morning, Steve. I'm glad, uh, glad to hear from you. And this is, this is exciting to begin to get the word out as much as we can on this, uh, on this work of fiction. Well, we want to emphasize this is a work of fiction, but it's also centered on some historical characters from the Bible. Everyone will recognize. Uh, I'm going to read what you have written about the book in a summary statement. You say, Simon's Crossing tells the story of Simon of Cyrene, who, when visiting Jerusalem for Passover, is suddenly pulled from the crowd in the streets and demanded to carry the cross of Jesus Christ up to Mount Golgotha. Full of hatred and revenge over the death of his wife at the hands of Roman soldiers, Simon suffers with Christ as he carries his cross and is transformed by the experience relinquishing his hatred and passion for revenge. So certainly credible emotions involved here, all different kinds from one end of the spectrum to the other. This must have been a a very exciting story to write, very demanding story to write. I'm sure you felt a great responsibility. Let's just start here, though. Dennis, why did you write the book? Well, it's a it's a fair question, and it's actually a good uh, originating question uh, to begin with, Steve. The the experience that I had was in a uh, three and a half month uh, sabbatical. I visited monasteries and retreat centers uh, in eight states in the United States, and in one of them, uh, and I'm Roman Catholic, in one of the retreat centers just north of Tucson, Arizona, a Carmelite monastery. I was making the Stations of the Cross out in the desert, uh, which is where the Carmelites had placed uh, the 14 Stations of the Cross. And I think Simon's, uh, the, the, the station that brings in Simon as the one who was pulled out of the crowd by a Roman centurion and told that he will carry this prisoner's cross to the top of Golgotha because the fear was that Christ would die of exhaustion if he was forced to carry his own. So I'm sitting in front of this cross out in the desert about 8 a.m., and a voice comes to me and says, tell my story. Now, I am not prone to hallucinations or hearing voices, so this startled me. And I tucked it in the back of my mind and went through my day. And in a couple of weeks after that, uh, I headed home to Santa Barbara, California, where we lived at the time, and forgot about it. And then about two months later, that incident, uh, I recollected out of the blue. And I thought, I wonder if there's something serious about that voice and about Simon, and I, uh, while I have written three volumes of poetry and I'm finishing up a fourth, I have never written short stories or novels, and I 
thought, maybe this is the time to tell Simon of Cyrena's story. And I invited my friend Charles Tasher, who at the time was provost at uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute, where I teach uh, two weeks a month, uh, who is a Episcopal priest and a Jungian uh, analyst. And I made an appointment and went in to see him, and I said, Charles, would it be of any interest to you to pair up with me to tell this story of Simon? And I related to him the incident that I just related to you and, and uh, the listeners. And he became very excited and animated, and he said, count me in. And I said, great, how do we do this? And Steve, over a seven-and-a-half-year period, talking once or twice a week, pretty much on a regular basis, and there were different things that happened in Charles's life, my life, that slowed us down, and we had to shelve the project. Still, Simon's voice would not go away. And so we stayed with the story, and here we are uh, in 2010 with the book just out. So... That was the originating moment that um, brought us together to, to write this story as a fiction, and yet we both feel that underneath the fiction is the mythology of Simon that is captured on some level, and, and the readers can make that decision for themselves uh, uh, when they read the story, uh, but we feel that in the fiction, there is a truth about Simon's experience. And, you know, some believe that <laughs> works of fiction can capture something historical even more profoundly than history itself can. And that was one of our bases, bases for, for writing it, that even while it's a fictionalized thing of history, might it also be possible that in the fiction is a truth about history that history itself has not given voice to? So that's a long answer to your question, but that really sets the ground for how this book came to being. Well, that's such an emotional image, I think, in everybody's mind who knows that story. We've seen it portrayed in, on TV, in the movies, uh, so yep. we have this image, and it's a very obviously extremely uh, emotional image because of the suffering of Christ. They're dragging, or he's dragging himself up to Calgary to be crucified, and yet here, out of the crowd, the Roman soldier yanks this innocent person at the moment, and yet, um, so so you take Simon, he's yanked out of the crowd, now you send him on a journey of his life because of his involvement with Christ in a very short period of time. It changes his whole life. Yes. And the, the exactly right. And the powerful metaphor that we wanted to give voice to, and in fact, one could make an argument that the main character in the story is the cross itself. And you know, this um, human condition, I think that each and every person finds uh, him or herself in uh, one time or many times, I think it's many times, is when, when the world 
steps up and asks the individual, are you willing to give something of yourself up and take on the burden of another and carry that burden in an act of selflessness? Uh, you know, the mythologist Joseph Campbell claims all of us are given a calling. Some heed it, others refuse it. And I think people die every single day having lived an unlived life. So this little vignette that appears in the Gospels where Simon is asked, are you ready to heed this call to serve another, or are you going to stand there and be a, remain a member of the crowd and refuse this call is, a, is what Carl Jung would call an archetypal situation. In other words, nobody gets out of this life without having been invited or coerced or commanded to step forward and become more the individual that they are because of this burden. And so that's the situation that I think is absolutely universal and that Christ becomes the occasion for that invitation to step forward and serve another. And for me, and I think for Charles, I don't want to speak for him, it's at the very heart of the Christian mystery, this serving of another by taking on the burden of another. And I think that's the piece that readers will be able to relate to most emphatically and perhaps most intimately when they read the story. Well, that is the essence of the teachings of Jesus Christ, that he was the model, he was the perfect example of it, and he asked us to follow him. So this story, really, even though it's a, just this really small moment in time for Simon of Cyrene, it changes his whole life, it affects his whole life, just like reading the story and visualizing it as we're reading it. It's going to change ours. Yes. Well, that's our hope. And I think you're absolutely right. There are, there are things that happen to each of us that transform us slowly over time, maybe over decades. And then there are those other situations that happen to us in an instant that change us radically from one second to the, to the next. Now, Simon's story is right in between there, because uh, even though the the Via Dolorosa, the, the journey up, the journey of sorrows, up uh, through Jerusalem and up to Golgotha, uh, lasts for part of a day. It's long enough, the story suggests, to change one's heart from a brittle, hard, resentful, and woundedness to one in which compassion and selflessness really do take over. And you're right, I think that is the heart of the Christian story, that miracle of a soul being transformed in the serving of another. I think it points out a paradox. Some believe, first I have to be, first I have to change, then I'll serve. And the paradox of Simon's story is, no, no, you got it backwards. You step forward in resentment and willingly serve. And in that, 
the resentment is dissolved and disintegrated. And sometimes, as the, as the story uh, unfolds in the gospel, uh, one has to be coerced. But, I, but Charles and I believe that Simon still had the choice to say, no, I will not serve. He chose, in, for reasons that only the mystery of the human heart could uh, recognize and express, he chose to step forward, even in his resentment and his woundedness, and he didn't re- recognize that in that moment, his healing began right there. But it took him some time for that recognition to come. So part of the, part of the paradox of the Christian mystery is what we hoped we captured at least on some fundamental level, Steve. Of course, we have, besides Jesus Christ and Simon, you also have Pontius Pilate, Rufus and Alexander, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Veronica, uh, you have Priscilla, the wife of Simon and the mother of Rufus and Alexander, and then there's Roman soldier, how do you pronounce his name? Abinadar. Abinadar. Tell us about yeah. Abinadar. We just have a, by the way, we have about, uh, oh, about three minutes left. Oh, gosh, the time is just flying. I'm sorry. It is. But, no, it's been really good. So tell us a little bit about this Roman soldier. It kind of sounds like it's just on the other extreme from Simon. Here's this Roman soldier, Abinadar. Yes. No, it's a perfect, what you just said there at the end. Here is one who is a functionary who uses the system that he's in to brutalize, rape, and violate others. He is, the, he is the flip side of Simon, and in some ways he's his inverse brother. This is the one who, instead of heeding the call to service, is one who is using a system, a political system, to further his own appetites. Now, every, every uh, winter quarter I teach Dante's Divine Comedy in the program that I'm associated with at at Pacifica, and and Abinadar is one of those characters in Dante's Inferno who spends his life satisfying his own appetites and doesn't recognize that this pleasure-seeking way of life is, is tantamount to living in hell itself. So he is the flip side. The other characters that you mentioned implicate the political public realm and the more private filial realm and our book our novel wants to witness that they cannot be separated that the political is the familial and what takes place in the familial is political then you can't draw a neat line down the middle and so Pilate for example, washing his hands of Jesus, thinking that's going to cleanse him from this political figure is, is absolute nonsense. And maybe Pilate's story is another, <laughs> is another like novel. It. Yes, definitely. Him to be, his story to be told. Exactly. Well, there's obviously when we talk about Jesus Christ and all the people that he affected in the scriptures are I have many references references to individuals who just had a brief contact with him, but that brief yes. contact changed their lives dramatically. Absolutely. 
or or, hard, or or maybe hardened them more. You know that may have been part of it as well. And they, they all didn't just soften up and follow Christ. No, in, in fact, some said we need to assassinate him. He's just bad for business. Right, right, absolutely. Well, just a fascinating yeah, novel, fascinating approach to this, Dennis. We really salute you for tackling this. And after seven and a half years, I'm sure you're grateful that you finally published it. <laughs> we feel like we've lifted the cross off our own shoulders for <laughs> yes. a short time. <laughs> well, how do we get your book, Dennis? Uh, you can go online to Amazon.com and get it. And you can, uh, it's available from iUniverse at www.iuniverse.com. And uh, we hope readers will buy it and discuss it, and if they care to, to contact either Charles or me, because we're very interested in seeing how the book is witnessed by readers, Steve. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Dennis. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. That was Dennis Slattery. He is the co-author, along with Charles Asher, of their book, Simon's Crossing. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Miracle of Me, a memoir. And the author is Alice Snow. And Alice joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alice. Hello. Well, good to have you with us. This is quite an emotional story, a personal story, uh, your memoirs. And I'm going to read a little from your introduction to kind of set the tone, the theme of your book. You wrote this. I had come to the doctor for a routine test to check out something simple, a little hand numbness and sting of the wrist here and there. 
Today, an MRI revealed some type of mass growing in my brain. How life could change so drastically in a 24-hour period that time itself could go from being my greatest ally to my worst enemy. And I felt, I felt a swift kick in the pit of my gut that seemed to suck the oxygen right out of my lungs. Whoa, that's a, a lot of feelings there. Yeah. Uh, r- written very well, uh, too. So congratulations on your, you're, you're a very uh, uh, pointed, emotional writer. It kind of goes right to into the heart. So I congratulate yeah. you on that. Why write this book? Why publish this book? That's a big effort. I wrote this book because I think I have a lesson to pass on to people. My whole life, I've been very giving to other humanity, but I've been very quiet about it. You know, you do it, and it's done, and you go on to something else. But I believe in writing this book, it will inspire others to do the same. I believe I've been presented a gift to be alive, and I am alive, and I will continue to do service in my community. There is no question in my mind. I will continue to do service in my community. When did you first discover this tumor? I was 20, I, it was 15 years ago I discovered the tumor, 15 years ago today. And at that time, they gave me anywhere from three months to three years to live because it was very, very malignant. Well, certainly you have beaten all the odds, that's for sure, and we're grateful that you've been able to do that. Now, you you start out right at a young age. You're helping us see what's going on in your family. Uh, back, what, 19 what? 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 Where do you take us back to? Uh, 1964. 1964. Yes, I was 16 years old. And my father was a remarkable man. He was in World War II. We didn't speak about it, but he was a remarkable man. And he became a bill poster. Do you remember the signs hanging up on the uh, driveways and the streets? My father did that. He posted signs. But we had an incident in the family where my uncle died, and he had a business of undertaker and so my father took over that business and that became a part of our family history now you had an interesting relationship with your father that others didn't have in the family tell us about that i was more serious the other were you know the others were just kind of normal kids i was always very very serious and so i think the relationship i had with my father was more uh I was a teenager, yes, but I was more uh, adult-like in my thinking, I believe, and that brought us closer together. And you kind of could read his mind, so to speak, just with the way he looked in his eyes. Yes, I could. He was a very, very, very kind man. So you must my have had a very... Also. You must have had a very special relationship with him. That's, that's always great when a father-daughter has that kind of relationship. Yes, and my mother, too, was a remarkable woman. She was a funny lady. My mother was a funny lady. We never had a down day at her, our house. She was fun and funny. 
So the book starts out back when you're 16 and goes over a span of how many years? Well, until present. Um, the book spans my life, my lifetime after the age 16. Um, the uh, last episode in the book is just recent. Now, also, you traveled a bit through your life, and you took you take us on different travels to the different countries that you visited, and and uh, why were you in these other countries? I had the desire to see the rest of the world, quote unquote. But I started out in going to Europe, and I was. Uh, 19 years old, you know, I went to school full-time to the University of Minnesota, but I also worked full-time, so I lived at home, so I was in school full-time, and I worked full-time, and I saved money, you know, and I went to Europe by myself, which at that time was unusual, you know, there's a lot more tourists now in Europe, but that was back in 1967 when I went, and it was a wonderful experience. And also you went to South America. Yes. Now that's a whole other story. I came back from Europe, went to school full-time, worked full-time. But I had a brother that was in Vietnam. And I felt, okay, this is not fair. He's in Vietnam. I need to do something. I need to do something productive. And so I very quietly uh, uh, signed up for a program that I could be part of the church in Bolivia. So I was a part-time missionary in Bolivia for a year. Well, these experiences of travel, of course, when we travel and we spend some time in a particular place, uh, we meet a lot of people and we learn a lot of things. Now, what were you learning at this time through your travels? Well, Bolivia at that time was the third poorest country in the world. And so when I got off the plane and took the taxi down to where I would be living, I had all that I could do but cry because of the poverty. I'd never seen anything like that before. I had never seen anything like that before. And so it all started from there. I got very involved with communities in Bolivia. And when you say you'd never seen anything like that before, what were you seeing? I was seeing poverty at its worst. You know, children that didn't have clothing. You know, no food for these people. They would eat bananas, but they didn't have food. They were very, very poor. And I was really uh, appalled at what I saw. It was uh, very, very heartbreaking for me. And so I became very involved with the Native people. I I went originally to be a secretary to the bishop, and I did that the whole time I was there. But I wanted more. I wanted to be with the Native people. Now, I'm only 20 years old, and at age 20, nothing bothers you, you know, nothing bothers you. I didn't mind my style of living. It didn't bother me at all. I was 20 years old. What are some of the people that had a very dramatic impact on you, people that were your mentors, teachers, you know, family, possible? 
Well, my mother, she was a saint, so I'm going to give my mother a lot of credit. She never put her foot down when I wanted to do anything. She encouraged me to follow my dreams. My mother was an, an incredible woman, and uh, she died fairly recently at age 90, so she was an incredible women, woman. I would say she, when I was young, when I was young, was my mentor. My mother was my mentor, and she was fun. Everybody loved my mother. You know, she was there for anybody that needed help. She was there, and so I saw her as being my mentor. Well, give us another person, uh, a teacher, a work associate, or someone who had a great impact on you. I would say the man that wrote my recommendation to go to Bolivia. I was only 20 years old, but I knew the man that was in charge of, uh, I was not uh, in the 4-H, but he was in charge of the 4-H in Minnesota, and he was a member of our church, and he wrote an elaborate, positive note on who I was and what I was doing in our community at age 20. And so it was because of him that I was able to go to Bolivia at age 20. I was the youngest, you know. <laughs> so did you feel driven to live up to these kinds of expectations? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. In fact, I was more driven than I expected. Well, that's an important part of our lives. If people show us our potential, and many people, though, don't grab a hold of it. You know, they unfortunately let it slip through their hands. But other people, and it's probably a small percentage, people like you who really grab a hold of it and really accomplish a lot in life, what would you say are some of the uh, great accomplishments that you feel were, you know, obviously noteworthy for your book. Oh, I did quite a bit in terms of, of uh, accomplishments and working with the underprivileged, not only in South America, but also in America. I just wanted to mention that when I came home from South America to be back with my family again, I'll never forget our first dinner you know, Americans eat, you know, and sometimes they don't eat at all. And I'll never forget literally, quote, unquote, yelling at my younger brother who did not finish his chicken. <laughs> and everyone was kind of taken back. Right. You this were... was my first evening home. And then all of a sudden I realized, Alice, you're in Minnesota now. You know, you have to get used to the culture again, and also it was difficult for me when I first got back, you know, to relate to my friends, you know, I didn't, they were just used to American life, and I was, uh, I had seen so much difference, so that was difficult. Now, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just, you know, uh, asking about this, these expectations that you saw in yourself with others, the way they were talking about you, writing about you at a young age, uh, what kind of an effect did that have on you? What, what, were you? what were you able to accomplish because of it? Well, I always became a coordinator of mission service wherever I lived. You know, in uh, Denver, I was a coordinator, and I helped develop. Now, this goes back before my brain tumor, so this goes back, you know, maybe 18 years ago in Denver where we lived. 
and I helped develop a uh, home for the children, you know, by children I mean anyone between 10 and 20 that were homeless, and, and uh, I was very successful in, in helping that occur, and that made me feel really good. You know, the thing with any work that I did, I did it very quietly. I did it very, very quietly. You know, I just wasn't looking for any recognition. I just did it. I think probably because of my stay in Bolivia, I felt a need to continue doing those kinds of things. And what kind of an impact did all these experiences have on you to help you through this incredible challenge of dealing with a brain tumor? Well, I don't come out and say it, but I think that I'm being, in a way, rewarded for everything that I did. Now I have tears in my eyes because what I have is very serious. I have a malignant brain tumor. And when I went back to the hospital five years ago, they just thought, forget it. But I didn't forget it. I'm doing well, and I'm continuing to do well. So I'm grateful that I had the ability to do what I was able to do. Now physically, I'm not able to do what I used to do. But I think writing this book will be a source of inspiration to other people. That's what I believe. That's why I wrote it. So you've had all kinds of different treatments, I'm sure. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. I've been under radiation a couple of times. I've been uh, operated on. And in fact, that's kind of a cute story. I had a wonderful, wonderful love story, and that's in the book as well. But my husband, actually, I'm going to put this in quotations, lied to me. When they first went in to take a look at my brain tumor and to pull some of it out, it was so malignant and so deep that they couldn't take any of it out, except just a sample, you know, to check the malignant, a small sample to check the malignancy. Anyway... My husband said, oh, they removed 25%. And that lie kept me going. That lie kept me going. And then I found out, you know, in, with a recent return, <laughs> that they didn't take it. And I thought, bless his heart, you know, he kept me going. Well, just listening to you, Alice, you would never know that you've been through these incredible tough experiences. You sound so full of life, and I'm sure you are because of all your experiences and all you've done. And, and in spite of the brain tumor, you're determined to live life to its fullness right now, it sounds to me. Oh, yes. I wake up every morning. I look out the window, and I am very, very grateful. Absolutely, I am. Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through iUniverse.com, iUniverse.com, and it's also available through Amazon, and also you can get it from me. Do you have a website? Yes. And what is that? My website is Alice, 
A-L-I-C-E, Snow, S-N-O-W, Killam, K-I-L-L-A-M, at gmail, G-M-A-I-L dot com. Well, very good. We appreciate you sharing a few elements of your life and of this book. You, uh, We wish you the best, and our prayers go with you, Alice. I know that you're going to be an inspiration to those around you, and especially to those who buy your book. So thank you. Thank you. That was Alice Snow. She is the author of her book, The Miracle of Me, a Memoir. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.